Uh, today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about families, and uh, and you might be wondering, well, I thought we were, you know, in this journey through Genesis, we were going to talk about the flood. Oh, we are. We're going to talk about the flood, but it's going to be in the context of families, because every one of us has a different kind of family. You know, it's interesting to get to know people, and then later, if you happen to meet their family, uh, a lot of times you might say, oh yeah, okay, I get it, you know. They're sort of like that, and that might be a good thing. It might not be so good of a thing, but, uh, but every once in a while, you come across someone, and then you meet their family, and, and it's like, really? You come from that family? It's so, so much different. You're, you're very different than your family, and uh, a lot of times, of course, that can be a compliment, too. Um, you know, the, one of the great things about this life is God's given us free will, and so to one degree or another... We have the ability of self-determination for our lives, okay? There's a lot of things we can't control, uh, but there are some things that we do control. And, and so we have this ability to forge our own path, even if our family um, historically has forged a different path. Generally speaking, though, uh, what you normally see is patterns of life develop in generation after generation after generation, in families. They, they tend to share uh, traits that are similar, and not just physical traits. I mean, that's obvious, but they tend to share spiritual traits that are very similar to one another. And so what I'd like to ask you today is, did you come from a family that just loved the Lord and served the Lord, or did you come from a family that forsook the Lord? You know, God will, really wasn't a part of that family. And I, and I mean that not just in your own immediate family, your family of origin, but also uh, if you know anything about your family tree, you know anything about the ancestry, the, the genealogy. Uh, again, families tend to follow certain types of patterns, even spiritually. And it's interesting to know this about your own family, whether you're uh, what they call an outlier, whether you're someone that's very much unlike the rest of the family, or whether you're uh, very much like the rest of your family. One of the great lessons that we learn from the book of Genesis is this idea that families share spiritual traits. And we see this uh, all throughout the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is really the story of a number of different families, obviously connected together, but a number of different families. And so, that's what we're going to talk about today. And again, you know, you might, have, you know, might be thinking, I thought we were going to talk about the flood. Well, think of it this way. There are a whole lot of families that didn't make it on that ark. But there's one man's family that did. Okay? And so it is, it is the distinction between this one man's family and the rest that I want to point out today. Now, when you read the book of Genesis... Uh, according to your translation, you'll come across a phrase that may something, say something like, uh, these are the family records of so-and-so. Or your translation might say, these are the generations of so-and-so. That happens about 11 times in the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, when that happens, it means there's a brand new section. You know, the chapter divisions that you have in your Bible, they didn't come, across, come around until decades and really centuries and millennia later. Originally, these divisions, and at least in the book of Genesis, were divided by, every time you see the phrase, and these are the family records of, or these are the generations of, this person or that person. So you have the generations of 
First you have the creation, then you have the generations of Adam, the generations of Cain, and then you have the generations now of Noah. And so where we are in the, in the journey is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and there is a strong break between the themes of Genesis 6, 8 and Genesis 6, 9. Genesis 6, 8 finishes a previous section, and Genesis 6, 9 starts anew, and then you might be thinking, well, who really cares? I'm going to show you why you should care about this today. Now, sometimes people wonder when they hear about the, the flood story, especially if they're not a believer, they say, what kind of God would destroy the whole world with the flood? I mean, that just seems sort of vengeful, seems sort of spiteful. What kind of God would do that? And I think that's a fair question. I actually do. I think it's a fair question. We want to be careful with our attitude. But I think it's a fair question to ask, what was it that led God to do this incredible, never-to-be-repeated thing of destroying the world. And the reason is what we find in the differences between the section that ends in chapter 6, verse 8, and the section that begins in chapter 6, verse 9. This simple division tells us something about ourselves, and I want to show you what this is. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 10, in that verse, here's what we read. This slide is on the screen behind me. And we're going to use King James Version for, for, for at least this verse, okay? Because I like the way it sounds. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that doesn't seem like very much of a consequence right there. It's just a simple statement of fact, right? But if you look at the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, the very last verse, and that, of course, belongs to the previous section, here's what we read, and I want you to compare the two verses. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, why in the world is the Bible repeating itself within the span of, what, 11 verses? I mean, does God just think... These people are so forgetful. And this is such an important point that I want them to really know that when they gather around and they play Bible trivia 4,000 years later, that they know who Noah's sons are. It is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What's the deal? Why is the Bible repeating itself? Well, I would tell you that it's not. Read the verses carefully. There is a difference. In chapter 5, verse 32, Noah begat three offspring, three individuals, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But in chapter 6, verse 10, he begat three sons. There is a difference, a world of difference between having offspring and having sons. Having sons, excuse me, having offspring is relatively simple, especially for men. But even for women, in nine short months, a woman can have an offspring that is either a male or a female. It will be one of the two, in spite of what society says these days. 
Having an offspring is relatively simple. You want a child? Easy. You want a son? You want a daughter? That's a different thing. Noah's offspring, in chapter 5, verse 32, became his sons. In chapter 6, verse 10, and you might wonder, well, what in the world happened that turned Noah's offspring into true sons? Well, I'll tell you what I think happened. Let me ask you a question. Why would God make a 500-year-old man build a boat as big as that? Why in the world would God do that to a 500-year-old man? Isn't that cruel and unusual punishment to make a 500-year-old man spend 120 years of his life building that? I mean, why didn't God just say, Noah, you're getting up there. You've been around for a long time. We've known each other for five centuries now. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Because the old shoulder doesn't work as good as it used to, I'm going to make you a boat. I'm going to do it myself. And God just speaking into existence. Or somehow it just comes floating up over the horizon at the nearest ocean and it lands at the beach. Why didn't God do that for Noah? Well, there's at least two reasons. Number one, as I've mentioned, it took 120 years for this man to build this thing. And by the way, that's a picture, not of the original, okay? That's a picture of a duplication in, in Kentucky. In fact, uh, Gary and his family went there recently. But it's life-size. It is actually how big the Bible says the original one was. Two reasons why God had Noah build it and take 120 years to do it. Number one, it gave the people of Noah's day 120 years to repent of their wickedness. Okay, so it was an act of mercy. Second reason is this. God was building Noah's character right before the watching eyes of Noah's sons. You see, Noah was 20, excuse me, Noah had been building the church, building the church, building the ark for 20 years before his sons even began to come along. And so as Noah was building the ark, God was building him. In order for Noah to obey God, Noah had to become the most unpopular man on earth. The most ridiculed man on earth. Oh, it's going to take you a long time, Noah. Clock's ticking on you. I don't think you're going to be able to do it, old man. I think you're going to die before you ever get this project really off the ground. And every insult hurled Noah's way strengthened his steely resolve. Every person who rejected Noah's message to repent built up in Noah his own character, his own principles, and by the time his sons came along and began to watch their daddy receive all of these insults and keep 
on obeying God, Noah had become a very principled man, a man of impeccable moral character. And so Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they grew up in this man's presence to the point that they truly became his sons. Men, if you want to have kids, that's easy. But if you want to raise your offspring to become sons or daughters, you need to build yourself. If you are not even yet a father, but you think one day I might be a father, start building yourself today. Elevate yourself spiritually. It is time to put the childish and the foolish things away. You need to become a student of God's Word. You need to become a student of the book of Proverbs, reading the book of Proverbs for wisdom every day. You need to sit under the teaching of a Bible-believing pastor. You need to invest your life in God's people, the church. And you need to be a man who knows God personally, a man who prays to God. You had better build yourself up spiritually. Noah had one priority. It was obeying God. Obeying God. His offspring learned the lesson, and they became his sons. Now, that wasn't enough to tell you about this distinction between the previous section and the one that we're about to read. There's another distinction that I want you to understand, and this one tells us something about God. In chapter 6, verse 3, which is the previous section, Scripture says, The Lord said, verse 5, The Lord saw, verse 6, The Lord regretted, Verse 7, the Lord said. Verse 8, with the Lord. You see that term Lord there used over and over and over again all the way up until chapter 6, verse 8. The word Lord mean, is the word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It is the relational name of God. It is the name that God uses when he has a covenant with somebody. It is the name of God that extends mercy to those of us who are sinners and are in need of mercy. That is what we read in the previous section. But when you get to verse 9, the new section, here's what we read. Walked with God. In God's sight. God saw. Then God said. The word Lord is nowhere to be found. It's God. Same person. Same eternal God. What happened to the word Lord? Now, the word God, Elohim. Different word is used. Elohim is a very impersonal word. It simply means God. Elohim is a word that is used when God judges. The lesson we've learned 
is that by the time of verse 9, mercy has run out and only judgment remains. Up until verse 8 of chapter 6, the Lord was showing mercy to mankind. Even in the midst of sin in Genesis chapter 3, even in the midst of murder in Genesis chapter 4, even in the midst of ten successive generations declining down an ever-widening spiral in Genesis chapter 5, and then God even goes so far as to give man 120 more years to repent before judgment comes. But now, Beginning in verse 9, there's no more mercy, only judgment, no mercy for the wicked. Now someone might say, well, I, I thought God's mercy was everlasting. The Bible says God's mercy is everlasting. Oh, that's absolutely true. God's mercy is everlasting. Why? Because God is everlasting. And God in His very self, in His very core, in His very nature, He is a merciful God. The issue is not the character of God. The issue is the character of us. God extends mercy to the wicked for a time. You see, in this life, you can have mercy. But once this life ends, mercy is run out. God's mercy for you is limited. Because your physical life on this earth is limited. There's a limited amount of time that you have to say yes to God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible says there is a point at a time for man to die once. And after that, the judgment. I've heard people say, well, you know, I, I've got a plan. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right with God before I die. Right there on my deathbed, I'm going to get right with God. Well, maybe it'll work out for you that way. But i got to tell you, in all of the history of the Bible, I'm only aware of one deathbed con uh, conversion, and it was the thief on the cross. So can it happen? Sure. Is it likely to happen to you? Hardly. The time for salvation is today. The only thing tomorrow might bring is judgment. The problem is that you don't know when God's merciful offer of salvation will cease. You don't know when your day to meet him will come. Some people say, well, I, I just believe that God is so merciful. He, he just loves us so much. He, he won't judge us. Let me show you one more thing. One more distinction between these two sections. In chapter 6, verse 6, we read this. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. The word man is the Hebrew word Adam. Adam! Mankind, humanity, takes its very name from its founder, the first one who is made in the very image of God. What an honorable thing for mankind to become for, or to be called. But in verses 12 and 13 in the new section, the word Adam is no longer used. Then God said to Noah, 
I have decided to put an end to every creature. The word creature is the Hebrew word basar. It's not like the word Adam at all. The word creature means flesh. It literally means meat. God is calling humanity meat. Because this meat is all over the earth. It's filled the earth with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. How wicked had humanity become? It had become so wicked that humanity barely was recognizable as humans anymore. Barely recognizable as having the image of God anymore. When God looked at humanity, he saw walking pieces of meat doing whatever they wish and not obeying his orders, not obeying his commands, engaged in every kind of unnatural sin going against his very order of things. Woe to us if we ever get to the point where God looks at us and all he can see is the flesh on our bones. Nothing of spiritual redeeming value. That's how bad it had gotten in Noah's day. With that context in mind, let's take a moment and read Genesis chapter 6. We're just going to read the story of the flood, beginning in verse 9, all the way through the end of chapter 7. And I'm only going to have one interruption for comments. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature. For the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, 
gather it as food for you and for them. Verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Listen to me. This is our standard in verse 22. To do everything that God has commanded us to do. I'm afraid that way too many individuals, way too many Christians, way too many churches have an attitude that says that it's okay for us to do most of what God has told us to do. If we do most of what God tells us to do, it will bring destruction to ourselves. Can you imagine what might have happened if after God said to, Mo, uh, to Noah to cover the ark with pitch inside and out, Noah said, you know, my back just isn't feeling up to it today. I think I'm just going to cover the outside of the ark with pitch. What do you think might have happened? It would have been disastrous. God gave very specific instructions, and they were to be followed to a T. And that's what Noah did. He did everything God had commanded him to do. When God gives us a command in Scripture, we are to obey it, no matter how minute that command is. There is a reason for it. We must obey it. I see an example of this uh, being violated today. Unfortunately, with some of our friends of other denominations, some good godly churches, good godly people of other denominations. We've seen how some of these other denominations face, even today, the potential loss of church property. Who would they lose it to? They would lose it to the larger denomination they belong to who are not following God's word. But this individual congregation is. Why would they lose their church property to the denomination? Well, other than sin, what has happened is these denominations have failed to follow the clear biblical example of every church being self-governing and autonomous. So who really owns the property of that church? The denomination, not the local congregation. And when there's a conflict... When the local congregation wants to obey God and the larger denomination says, no, you shall not, it is the local congregation, the godly people, who lose the property that they've invested so much of their life and money into. It is an avoidable hardship. It could have been avoided had they simply studied the scriptures and done everything that the New Testament tells it to do. Even in our own Southern Baptist Convention, there is not any problem in the Southern Baptist Convention, and we have a host of them right now, but there is not any problem in the Southern Baptist Convention that could not be corrected by the application of biblical principles. It's very simple. God's given us his word. Read it. Do it. Obey it. Or you can just decide, I'll do most of it and see what happens. I want to let you know that I'm committed to doing, as your pastor, 
and helping us as a church to do everything that God commands us to do. Let's continue. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, notice the word Lord has returned. God is showing his mercy to Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all of your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals. And two of the animals that are not clean, a male and his female, and seven pairs of male and female of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and the water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. From the animals that are clean and from the animals that are not clean and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, entered the ark, along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all of the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth. And all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth 150 days. 
What an incredible event. Only Noah, a man of righteousness, what the New Testament calls, it calls him a, a preacher of righteousness. Only he and his family survived. Now, I don't know what kind of family you came from. I don't know if they, a bunch of hellions and wild people and didn't know the Lord at all. But I do know this. You have an opportunity for yourself and if you have a family, an opportunity for your family to forge a path of righteousness. That's what God is calling you to today. It begins by acknowledging your sin before God and understanding that you need His mercy. Every one of us here in this room, myself included, need the very mercy of God. Because the scripture tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who understands. We are already guilty before the Lord. We must receive his mercy he extends it to us today i cannot promise you what tomorrow will bring he extends it to us through his son the lord jesus christ the lord jesus christ is the one who came to this earth who died on a cross for you and me who was risen from the grave to give us life and if we will turn to him then the righteousness that Jesus lived becomes our righteousness. And we, all of our sin, goes upon Christ. It already has, actually, when he, Jesus died on the cross. He's already paid the debt. All that remains is our response.